Good morning. Happy Sunday. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm going to say a prayer for us and get us started. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. We are thankful for this day. Thank you for this time. We're thankful for uh, the space that you give us just to learn about you and grow nearer to you. I pray that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds and our actions, Father, drawing us more and more into the men and women you've created us to be. Help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Sarah Montana was 22 years old, a 17-year-old young man broke into her family's home and murdered her mother and her 19-year-old brother. He was convicted and sentenced to two life sentences in jail, and it just wrecked Sarah's life, her family, fractured everything. Seven years after this horrible tragedy, she realized she really hadn't forgiven the young man who had done this. She thought she had, she told people she had, but she realized she was still chained to him and what he had done to her family. So she began the process trying to learn, like, how do you forgive? And she did all the research, she checked into religion and psychology, and as she was trying to figure out how you forgive, especially something so horrific, she realized she was asking the wrong question. So instead, it wasn't how to forgive somebody else, Instead, the question should have been, why would we forgive somebody else? Why would we? And so it was interesting. She gave a TED Talk. Um, it was called The Real Risk of Forgiveness and Why It's Worth It. And she said, most of us, really, when it comes down to it, we're forgiving people for the wrong reasons. She said, first, we think that forgiving quickly makes you a good person. So forgiving's good. You want to be a good person, so you just forgive quickly and move on. She said, second, victims feel a lot of pressure from everybody else to forgive. Everybody wants to feel better and move on, so they want you to feel better and move on. So the pressure is there that you have to forgive. And then she said, third, oftentimes we think forgiveness is a shortcut to healing, that we can somehow skip that messy, vulnerable part that goes from hurt to healing by just acting like we're better and moving on. But she said the problem is trying to look good, please people, and skip that messy middle doesn't work. Instead, she said, we forgive for an entirely different reason. The core of forgiveness, and I find this so interesting from the thoughtful process that we're going to tie in today, is it's designed to set you free. At the core of forgiveness is, I know what you did. It's not okay. I recognize that you are more than that, and I don't want to hold us both captive to this thing anymore. And she said, that's really counterintuitive because what culture teaches is vengeance is freedom, right? Like, get back at people, feel better about it, then you can move on. She said, but that's actually a prison we trap ourselves in. And most of us avoid forgiveness like the plague because we don't want to look at our wounds. They hurt. <laughs> they're nasty, they're scary, and they're better to avoid and ignore. And so in the process of doing all of this studying, she wrote a letter to this young man who'd killed her mom, who was in prison, and she tore from her mom's journal a blank page. She wrote out a letter, she mailed it to him, and did the work to forgive him. But she said, forgiveness is tricky. It's never too late to let go of your villains and reclaim yourself. What I find just so incredibly fascinating about her story, she's the capacity of the human spirit, the strength and the resilience, and not just to survive this tragedy, but grow and learn and process it and move on in a healthy way. 
And usually when we talk about forgiveness, we talk about how challenging it can be, right? How hard it can be, how frustrating, how scary, how much we don't want to or why we shouldn't have to. But I want to reverse the question on us today. Instead of thinking what we need to forgive, what if we are the person who needs forgiveness? What if we are the ones who hurt somebody else? What if our choices, our actions, cause damage or hurt to someone else around us? See, it's easy for us to say, like, this is what's happened to me in the last 15 years and how I've been hurt and what I've been through. It's much harder to turn the lens and say, in that time, where have I been the one who hurt somebody else? How do you say you're sorry in a position like that? How do you ask for forgiveness? So how do we move not just from seeing others and what they've done, but seeing ourselves and where we are required to ask for forgiveness and apologize. If life were a movie, we would have this like big scene and everybody would know the right words to say and there'd be the right apology and the embracing and the music would play and the montage where everybody ended happily ever after, right? But life isn't a movie. <laughs> In real life, you know this because any type of relationship, there's tension and there's hardship and we have a lot harder of a time apologizing. We're terrible at saying the right thing or asking for forgiveness. We struggle not just admitting when we've done the wrong thing or haven't gotten right, but where we've actually done hurt and harm in the process. So today we're going to look at that next step and see how do we move into this piece where we look at our own lives, our actions, our choices, our thoughts, and see how we've hurt other people. So we've been looking at the 12-step process. We started with, I love, I can't, God can, I think I'll let God. I'm powerless to save myself, I'm powerless to save anybody else, but the incredible, mighty goodness and grace of God can. And then we did that real, honest, searching, fearless, moral inventory of ourselves, and we stopped hiding from what we didn't like about ourselves. We're not avoiding the problems, the emotions, the impulses that we find painful, hurtful, or embarrassing. No more secrets. If our secrets are keeping us sick, then we have to stop hiding behind them. We look at them, we examine them, we take a, a full inventory of who we are, and then we admit it all to God. We confess, this is who I am. I need help to remove these shortcomings. I need help to move past these problems. We admit to God everything, and we ask for help. And our promise that he's given us is he is faithful and just. Our hardest problems, our darkest secrets are the places we can trust him. He isn't disgusted by us or shocked by us. He's for us. And where we feel defeated or crumbling or tired or sick, our promises, we can turn to him and he'll help us. We aren't trying to do all the work and heal ourselves and figure it out. Christ says, come to me. I've got you. The hardest work that needed to be done, he's already done on our behalf. So now that we've got ourselves to this place, when we've admitted to God what's going on, when we've asked for help, we come to what happens next. Step eight says, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Step nine, we made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. This is a hard step because up to this point, we've been really like investigating ourselves and our hearts and our emotions and our problems and our secrets. And now we have to make a list and look at the people around us. 
We've got to say, how have my emotions had a ripple effect? How have I hurt? What damage have I done? Where have I taken people for granted? Who's been harmed? And how do I make this right? Look at what King David says in Psalm chapter 34. At verse 12, he says, Whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. It's so interesting because part of that confession and repentance process that we spoke about last week was a turning, right? We turn from one way to another way, one thought process to another thought process, one way of choosing to do life to another, a turning in who we are. I love this so much. The author Mark Manson said it. Whether we like it or not, we're always taking an active role in what's incurring to us and within us. We're always interpreting the meaning of every moment and every occurrence. We're always choosing the values by which we live and the metrics by which we measure everything. The more we choose to accept responsibility in our lives, the more power we will exercise over our lives. This is so powerful. Fault is past tense. Responsibility is present tense. Fault results from the choices that have already been made. Responsibility results from choices you are currently making every second of every day. His point is, while it might not be your fault, Whatever happened, whatever got to here, now it is your responsibility. And so he says, we all get dealt cards, right? We don't know what kind of deck of cards we're going to get dealt. Some of us get better cards than others. He says, well, it's easy to get hung up on our cards. The real game lies in the choices we make with those cards, the risks we decide to take, and the consequences we choose to live with. We can't go back and change the past. It is what it is but we can choose, how do I live today? How do I move forward? How do I take responsibility and just radical ownership of who I am in my life so that I can move forward in new and healthy ways? So I love this verse from Psalms because David gives us really concrete ways to put this into practice. So if we're working on the turning from one way of doing things that didn't work to another, here's how we turn. Here's what he says. First, in our words. He says, stop lying. Stop using your words to hurt. Instead of our using our words to tear others down or insult each other or hurt each other or mock each other, instead of anger or harshness or dismissiveness or rejection, instead of making ourselves feel better at the expense of other people, instead of talking about other people in ways that are mean or cruel, instead of gossiping, lying, he said, turn towards using your words for good. Think about how important this is in a relationship. Think about when talking and apologizing and all of that matters. G.K. Chesterton said, a stiff apology is a second insult. The injured party doesn't want to be compensated because he's been wrong. He wants to be healed because he's been hurt. And how we use our words in moments like that, it's powerful. So the question we ask ourselves is, where are my words or lack of words help hurting other people? Where have I said something I shouldn't have said? Where have I been unkind or cruel or mean or harsh or dismissive or passive aggressive? Because you'll get the jab in one way or the other, right? Just as we've used our words to hurt one another, we can turn towards using our words to help, to heal, and to encourage. And it starts with an apology. Using our words to apologize is so powerful. But let's be honest, we're not good at apologizing. There's an interesting article in NPR, 
and I read it this week, and it's a book that came out called Sorry, 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 The Case for Good Apologies. And the authors of the book said there's six really good steps for great apologies. First, they say, say you're sorry. Not that you regret, not that you're devastated, say that you're sorry. And then second, say what you're sorry for. What are you apologizing for? Be specific about it. Third, show you understand why it happened, why it was bad. Take ownership. Show that you understand you caused the hurt. Fourth, don't make excuses. Fifth, say why it won't happen again. What steps are you taking? And then six, if it's relevant, make reparations. If something's broken, fix it. Something's damaged, move towards repairing it to make it better. And she said, really, there's a half step. Six and a half is listen. When someone's been hurt, right, they don't want um, compensation. They want healing. And part of being able to heal is to talk about what hurt and why it hurt. So don't jump over them. Let the person say what they have to say. I love the authors say, regret is about how I feel. We're all regretful. Sorry is about how the other person feels. When you apologize, you have to keep the other person's feelings at top of mind. And this is hard, because usually when we're in a position like this, it's uncomfortable and it's vulnerable and we don't like how we feel. And living in that tension, we want to do everything we can to get out of it. But when we use our words in the right kind of way, we offer so much health and freedom and encouragement to others. They say, here are some words not to say when you're apologizing. Don't say obviously. Well, obviously, I'm sorry. Obviously, it shouldn't have happened. Obviously, I don't want to be here because this is terrible, right? If it was obvious, you wouldn't have to say it. <laughs> so don't say the word obvious. Don't say the word already. Well, I've already apologized. Why isn't this better, right? Well, I've already done what I could do. It's not helpful. <laughs> we wouldn't be here if it had happened. So don't say the word al already. And they said, don't use qualifiers. They said, sorry, the qualifiers, I'm sorry if, sorry but, right? Like the qualifiers are, I'm sorry, but really you shouldn't have been standing there anyways because that's your fault, right? Like there's always a, a way out with that. They said intent is far less important than impact when it comes to apologies and that a bad apology can even make things worse. They said it's akin to the cover-up being worse than a crime. If you make an apology that says, you know, you shouldn't have had a white sofa. If, I wouldn't, if you wouldn't have had white, the stain wouldn't be there, right? Like, it's really your fault. Or they said, that can hurt even more. But on the other hand, a great apology, even a late one, has tremendous healing power. Okay. This matters because, remember... So much of what we're going through, what we're thinking about and processing and conflicted with in our own lives, we're really good at projecting it on others. But the turnaround side of that, what Richard Rohr said is, we're often most gifted to heal others precisely where we ourselves are wounded or have wounded other people. Even though you might not feel like you're good at it, even though you might have fumbled it in the past, you are gifted to do this work precisely because of where you are and what you've been through. What if we put this into practice? This is, this, is, this is why we need tools. What if we wrote down those steps to how to make a good apology and then we practiced them? What if we went through and said, who do I need to apologize? Where, where have I hurt? Where have I upset? Where have I said the wrong thing? Where do I need to turn towards a different action? Make a list of where you haven't done a good job apologizing, even when you feel uncomfortable. 
even when you feel that that really negative pull towards all of the defensive reasons why you shouldn't think you have to, try. And then actually apologize. Talk to the person and let them know you want to do better. Practice the steps to saying sorry in a healthy way. And I want to, this is so important because the steps really are how they build on each other is impressive. But it says make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. There's nothing worse, and maybe you've had this experience or haven't. There's nothing worse than going up to somebody and apologizing for something they know nothing about. I thought terrible things about you for like a year. I thought you were a horrible person. If I don't know that, you don't have to tell me. <laughs> like That doesn't help. That doesn't heal me or help me. It actually does more hurt. Because now I'm like, oh, great. You hated me for a solid year. Didn't know. That's awesome. If you thought something bad or made bad assumptions about somebody or you thought the worst of them, telling them isn't healing for them. Instead, it actually can cause more damage, more hurt, and it's insulting when you didn't know what was going on. In that place, confess it to God. Talk to what your trusted person is, and then work to think better thoughts and move forward. Don't dump that on somebody else because it only hurts them. So first, if we're working towards making amends, towards healing with other people, we use our words to apologize because it brings healing, it's helpful, it's tremendously powerful in our lives and in our hearts and in our healing. <clears throat> we don't have to just be the people who work at forgiveness. We have to be the people that do the work and are honest enough with ourselves and others that we need to be given, forgiven to to acknowledge what's been done, to apologize and ask for forgiveness. And we have to stop and pause because one of the biggest things that gets in the way of this is pride. <laughs> pride says, I know, because we're sitting here right now and thinking like, so-and-so should be in this sermon because they have so much to apologize for. Instead, the harder places to say, instead of projecting that on other people, right? Where's my pride? keeping me from taking an honest look at my life and my choices and my words and my actions. Pride says, okay, that might be true for them, but I'm the exception. You don't know what I've been through. That doesn't really apply in this situation, right? Like pride is, I deserve this. I'm owed this. I have a right to this. And it's hard to apologize. It's hard to make amends when we are full of pride. Because what drives that, even if we apologize, is, I'm sorry, but it's really your fault anyway. And every one of us know how that feels. Everyone knows how it feels to be talked to that way. And it never, ever does healing to relationships. Instead, humility is a softening towards one another. We need help. We need grace. Pride is wrapped up in arrogance and smugness and vanity, where humility is kindness and understanding and service-driven with generosity. Ralph Marston said, whatever you're doing, a sense of superiority will make you worse at it. Humility, on the other hand, will make you better. The moment you think you've got it all figured out, your progress stops. Instead, continue to advance and improve by reminding yourself how much more there will always be to discover. Confidence is positive and empowering, but arrogance is deadly. Be confident, but not at the expense of your respect for others. Don't burn up all your energy proving how great you are. Invest your time and energy being thoughtful and helpful. See the victories not as proof of your supremacy, but opportunities to offer more value to life. See the defeats not as personal affronts, but as a chance to learn and grow and be stronger. 
Take care not to waste your time in delusions of grandeur. Embrace the power of confident humility and live well. Humil having to apologize doesn't make you a terrible person. It makes you human. Saying I'm sorry doesn't take away from who you are or make you weak. It makes you someone who is strong enough to admit we don't have it all together and we're working at it, trying to grow and do better. So we turn by using our words not to hurt, but to heal and apologize. And we also use our words to encourage one another. I love this quote about encouragement. It says, encouragement sounds like such a small thing, subtle, cute. It's what we do with timid kittens, but encouragement isn't cute, it's fraught and powerful. When you're encouraging, you're instilling courage. There's absolutely nobody you know that doesn't need encouraged. No matter how put together they look, no matter how it might seem like life is moving along smoothly from them, we're all really one bad day away from being a hot mess, right? Like, we, we're all one bad minute away from things falling apart. And we all need to be encouragers towards one another. Start with the people around you. Who can you encourage this week? They say it takes something like five positive things to make up for one negative thing. So for every one negative comment that's been said to us, we need to hear five encouraging things to outweigh the other. So what if we made it that our goal? What if we said five positive things to our people this week? Whoever your people are, your friends, your family, your coworkers, like what if we just said, I'm gonna say five positive things to encourage them this week? You can say it out loud, you can write a note, something as simple as I appreciate you. I see what you're doing and it's making a difference. I'm thankful for you. I'm amazed that we get to do this together. You are amazing. You're beautiful. I believe in you. I'm praying for you. I'm proud of you. You aren't alone in this. It won't be easy, but I know you have what it takes. Just simple little statements of encouragement that can uplift somebody else. So David gives us this concrete path. If we're going to move forward and make amends, we got to use our words in the right way. We got to turn from using our words in harsh, unkind, hurtful ways <clears throat> to encouraging, uplifting, and apologizing ways. But then we also have to turn in our actions as well. He says, turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The best apologies are always followed up by actions looking for ways to do good, to actively pursue peace. Now, remember what we talked about last week. Sin is a problem for everybody, and it's a problem we can't fix on our own. We all need help, and it's not what exists out there. It's what exists in me, and I have to confront the ugliness that's inside of me, the guilt, the mess, the lies, the shame, the hurt, where I've been judgmental or hypocritical. We have to admit it, confess it, and confront it. And then we turn. We turn towards a new way of life, new choices, new actions. And Christ makes that possible. The work he does to forgive us empowers us and strengthens us to ask for forgiveness of others. And this is so important because when David talks about seeking peace and pursuing it, Christ is a champion of peace. And the peace of Jesus Christ is more than just an absent from all the bad things happening or a break from what's happening around us. It means wholeness and completeness. It means full and joy. And it's at the heart of everything wrong being made right and gaps being filled in. That's what Christ does. And when we spend the time to let Christ do that championing, peaceful work inside of us, where we learn from him, grow with him, connect with him, as he is at work in us, 
what flows out of us is we become champions of peace as well. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our communities, we do good by helping other people, by working for wholeness, by filling in those gaps that life creates, by serving and helping and showing up. When one of my little girls was younger, she loved Daniel Tiger. It's like the new Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. And they, every episode, have like a song that teaches you something about like friendship or anger or being okay when your parents leave. And one of them was about apologizing. And they always said, saying I'm, I won't sing it, it would torture you. But the first part was saying I'm sorry is the first step, then how can I help? So if apologizing is the first step, the action is how can I help? Every day, how can I help? What good can I do? Where can I be part of actively championing good and peace in the world? Every day, where can I look for opportunities to make a difference for good? That's how we help in our actions. It starts with our words, with acknowledging we have things to admit to other people and apologize and ask forgiveness, to using our words to encouraging and uplifting each other, and then it follows through in our actions. John Maxwell said there's five le steps in life transformation. I'm going to give them to you, but then there's five words I want you to write down. One, when you change your thinking, you change your beliefs. Two, when you change your beliefs, you change your expectations. Three, when you change your expectations, you change your attitude. Fourth, when you change your attitude, you change your behavior. Fifth, when you change your behavior, you change your life. Here are the five words he gives us. These are on the notes app if you want, or if you want to jot them down. The five words, thinking, beliefs, expectations, and attitudes and behaviors. Did I say those right? Thinking, beliefs, expectations, attitudes, and behaviors. What if we think about these five words this week? What if we say, in my life, is there peace in my thinking in any of these lives? Is there peace in my beliefs and my expectations and my attitudes and my behavior? Is there work towards good in my thinking, in my actions, in my behaviors, in my attitudes? Where is Christ at work in these five places in my life? Where have I turned from evil towards good so that I can pursue the goodness of Jesus Christ with all of my heart? Where do I need to open my heart to him? Where do I need to create more space for him to work? Where do I see I need more Christ in my thinking and less of me? More Christ in my attitude and less of me? More Christ in my expectations that hope still exists and God isn't done yet? The very best place for us to make amends in the lives of other people, in this world, in our family, in our community, is by working towards doing good and pursuing peace. Christ is at work, and he wants to partner with us to do his good work in the world. world. So he can be at work in us and through us to shine light and hope in the world. We live our very, very best lives when we turn towards Christ. Every time we work towards goodness and peace, every time we turn towards him and let him guide our words and our action, every time we let his mercy and compassion and love flow out of us in what we say and what we do, when the work of Christ is happening in us, our characters, our values, our belief, our actions, our thinking are all cultivated by him to be better than we could ever be on our own.
And if we want to do good and pursue peace, then we have to be proactive in working towards healing and health and goodness in our lives and the lives of the people around us. And it starts with us using our words for good. Who do you need to apologize to this week? And then we turn in our actions and we work to do the good and pursue peace as Christ has done in us. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help in us. I recognize that this work isn't easy. I recognize that there's something in us resisting where we are at fault and where we do wrong. I pray, Father, that the pride that prevents us from seeing other people and seeing ourselves clearly, that you would remove it. I pray that with humility we acknowledge we aren't perfect, we haven't gotten it right, and we can offer hope and help and healing to others by apologizing and moving forward in peace. I pray, Father, that the work of Christ would be active in our lives and our hearts and our thoughts and our thinking, actions, and souls, that more of you would become more of us, that we would be champions for good in this world and in this community. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.